As I mentioned uh, earlier uh, during announcements, our rotation is going to be a little wonky for the next uh, kind of few weeks because of just vacations and, and whatnot. So last week, uh, I, I finished us out, uh, or didn't quite finish us out on, on uh, Second Thessalonians. Uh, David will finish out Second Thessalonians when he's back from vacation. So uh, I see from the graphic, I forgot to let you guys know that, uh, that we're doing something different today than, than Thessalonians. And so we're going we're gonna to look at a whole bunch of scriptures today uh, about the church. Uh, I don't know how many of you have tuned into our, our podcast, but this week we uh, we had Glenn Miller as our guest. You guys all know Glenn and Stacy, and uh, Glenn was our guest, and we just talked about the state of the church uh, around the world. Uh, really good conversation, some good insights uh, from somebody that travels uh, around and sees the church beyond just here. Uh, and so I thought I would take the opportunity uh, today, uh, just with this standalone message, uh, to talk about the church. Usually. Usually if I get the chance to, to kind of pick what I talk about it, it's probably going to be something along these lines because I love the church. God's just given me a love uh, for the church uh, and who, who the church is, what the church is about. And so, so I want to give you just a little background, kind of Old Testament to New Testament. Uh, I don't know if you've ever really thought about um, kind of how the church came to be uh, into existence and how God formed the church. Uh, and, then, and then I want to try to give you uh, kind of a, a working definition of the church. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, like if you've thought to yourself, like what or who is the church and if you're able to articulate that. Uh, but I want to give you kind of a brief definition, and then I want to spend a little bit of time just kind of unpacking that definition. So hopefully, um, you know, by the end, we'll just maybe have a little better understanding about this thing that God has called us to be a part of, right? So that's kind of the plan uh, for today. So, so if we go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis, we see that God created all things. And how was it that God created things? There, there was nothing. God spoke into nothingness and said, let there be something. Uh, and there was, right? You and I don't have that ability. I can't look into nothingness. You can't look into nothingness and say, let there be, and then something happens. But that's what God did. Um, he created uh, at the pinnacle of creation, Adam and Eve, right? And, and at, the, at the end of his uh, six days of creation, he looked upon all of it, the, the people, the birds, the bugs, the fish, the plants, uh, everything that existed. He looked upon it and said, it's very good, right? God uh, created um, all things that we need for uh, our survival and our sustenance. Uh, he gave Adam and Eve a, a command after creation to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth, uh, and to subdue it and have dominion over uh, this very good creation. And you know the story that, that that didn't last for very long. It wasn't very long that things were very good, right? Sin entered into the world, mankind, human beings, Adam and Eve, uh, our first parents, if you will, rebelled against God. And sin entered the world uh, through that rebellion. And so you and I, everybody that has come after Adam and Eve has inherited that rebellious nature, that sin nature, right? So that's why we say that sin is inherent in us, right? Because the first people that God created, they, they rebelled, the creation rebelled against its creator. And so now you and I have inherited that on down through the generations, that rebellious nature. And, and it got so much so to the point where six chapters in to history as we know it, Genesis chapter 6, um, it, God showed His wrath against a sinful humanity um, because of their rebellion. The Bible tells us that, that God even was sorrowful that He created humanity. Not, not sorry as in that He made a mistake, right? Don't, don't misunderstand this. But, but the sin of humanity um, 
broke God's heart, so much so that he had sorrow over the rebellion and the sinfulness of mankind. And so, so we see that he exercised wrath against mankind because of their sinfulness in what we call the flood, right? Um, one family God chose out of all of humanity to save and to deliver through this show of wrath. And it wasn't because of anything that Noah and his family did. It was God's electing, choosing love towards them that he said, I'm going I'm to give you a command to build a boat, and, and you're going to get in the boat with your sons and their wives, uh, and, and two of every kind of animal on the earth, right? We know the story, uh, and, and God delivered his family uh, through that. He saved them from wrath and called them to a life of obedience, now, shortly after the flood happened, we know that the things kind of went back to what, what it was pretty quickly, right? Humanity continued to rebel. The creation continued to rebel uh, against its creator. We fast forward a few chapters into Genesis chapter 12, uh, and we're introduced to a guy named Abraham, right? God called Abraham uh, into a relationship, again, not because of anything that Abraham did or not because of who he was, not because he was the best guy around or anything like that. Uh, simply because God chose Abraham, uh, called him into relationship, and he chose to make of Abraham a great nation. He tells Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation, right? You ever think about what, what does it take to make a great nation? There's two basic things that are required well, to, to make a nation, let alone a great nation, and you have to have land and you have to have people, right? Those are two basic requirements of, of a nation uh, or a great nation. And God calls Abraham, says, I'm going to make of you a great nation, and then pretty quickly says, but I want you to leave your land, right? I want you to go somewhere, just like start heading this way, and I'll, I'll tell you when to stop. Like, we're going to, you're going to leave your land. Um, and his wife was barren and not able to have children. And so God gives this promise, right? I'm going to make of you a great nation, but leave your land and, and your barren wife. Like, somehow this is all uh, just going to work. And so God's grace upon Abraham, um, Abraham responded in obedience uh, to the Lord, and this is a significant moment in biblical history where, where God tells him like he's, he's going to create a people. He's already created a people in Abraham or in Adam and Eve, right? And, and, and sinful humanity has rebelled up to this point. And God, in this promise to Abraham of making him a great nation, uh, is foreshadowing this people that God would create that, that eventually would be the church, right? You and I, of which you and I are a part today. And, and so God creating, speaking into nothingness and creating something, right? Even in the Abraham narrative, God speaks into this nothingness, right? Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation, but I'm going to call you away from your land, and, and somehow people are going to come through this barren wife, speaking into nothingness, saying that there's going to come something. And we see this pattern throughout kind of Old Testament history that, that God would speak, uh, people would rebel, right? God would speak again, people would rebel, God would speak more, people would rebel, kind of wash, rinse, repeat. Uh, we see throughout the Old Testament that God in His long-suffering, in His patience with us, uh, continues um, to show mercy and to show grace towards His rebellious, stiff-necked people. God throughout the Old Testament sent prophet after prophet after prophet to proclaim oftentimes his judgment. Like being an Old Testament prophet, that, that was a rough job to have because basically you would just travel around and give bad news for the most part everywhere that you go, right? And, and these were people appointed by God um, to, to let them know that like judgment could be coming. 
But God doing that and appointing these prophets, not because God was necessarily angry at our rebellion. It's not like a like, wait till dad gets home kind of a moment, but God in his mercy and in his patience, in his long suffering, giving every opportunity for people to, to turn and repent and, and to come into obedience to him. Well, then we, we fast forward a bit more and we get into the New Testament and we see that God has had this plan that's been unfolding from the beginning that he would redeem a rebellious people. When Adam and Eve first rebelled, Right back in Genesis chapter 3, we see this foreshadowing of Christ in Genesis chapter 3 where, where God tells us, tells Adam and Eve what is going to come. And so, so then we get into this New Testament and we see uh, Jesus show up on the scene. The Father would send His Son to serve and to love this rebellious people. And in keeping with Old Testament history, New Testament history in this regard isn't a whole lot different. Because Jesus came, right? And, and what did we do to Jesus? We hung him on a cross. Right? Humanity, his own people, hung him on a cross uh, and put an innocent man to death. However, this was God's plan for redemption, right, from the very beginning. But just like the Old Testament Israelites, the New, New Testament um, people rejected God uh, as well and continued to rebel against him. But this whole time, God continues to desire to have relationship with His people. What, what would you do if you desired to have relationship with somebody and they just continued to reject you? you? You probably wouldn't last very long before you throw your hands up in the air and say, you know what, this, this isn't worth my time, it isn't worth my effort, right? Aren't we thankful that God is not like that? <clears throat> God doesn't exhaust Himself and doesn't say, you know what, For, forget these people. God continues in His long-suffering to love us and, and to, to do things to desire, to show us that He desires relationship with us. God calls people to Himself so that He can love, so that He can bless, so that He can show mercy, so that He can show grace, so that He can redeem people from the bondage of sin. And so God spoke into existence from the very beginning into nothingness and created something. And he, he created people, Adam and Eve, and they rejected him. And then God spared Noah and his family from his wrath and from his judgment. Eventually, people would go on to continue to reject God. And then through Abraham, God spoke a nation into existence that didn't previously exist. Again, speaking something uh, into nothingness. And then we come to this moment in Acts chapter 2. If you're not familiar with Acts chapter 2, it's the day of Pentecost. Uh, Jesus had died. He'd been, been gone for a while. Disciples still kind of grieving his death. And they're hanging out in this room, Jesus' disciples. And, and the Spirit descends, right? The Spirit descends upon the people. And Peter, who kind of up to this point had been, shall we say, less than impressive, guy's kind of a doofus, would speak before he thought often, right? Um, God speaks through Peter. Peter stands up and he preaches a sermon to thousands of people in attendance, right? This guy that, that not long before this denied even knowing who Jesus was, right? Denying his association with him, stands up and, and preaches a sermon. And we're told that just in a moment, 3,000 people came to faith in Christ as a result of Peter's sermon, 
Right? There was no church before this happened. And Peter proclaims the good news of the gospel. People respond in faith to the gospel. And we might say that this would be kind of the birth of the church. Right? But really this trajectory that's been in place from the beginning, right? when God created Adam and Eve, this trajectory has, has been on its way. And now in the trajectory, the church didn't exist right? Nothing existed. People came to faith, and then there was a church, right? And then we have a New Testament of, you know, the apostles, primarily the apostle Paul, but the apostles writing letters to the church and giving the church instruction on how to be the church. And so again, kind of something came out of nothing, and only God can do that. And what this shows us is that, that God, again, has not exhausted His resources, like God is still calling people to Himself. You ever thought about why the church exists on the earth? We'll get into that more in a moment, but think about that for a second. Why is the church here? Why is it that, that when we come to faith, we don't just automatically get beamed up to heaven? The church exists in the world for a reason. And so that's the history. And so given that history, I want to... I wanna, just point out this pattern that we see unfold in Scripture, that God forms things and forms people by His Word, by the proclamation of His Word. And when this church formed in the book of Acts, we see pretty immediately without really any instruction that we see that, that immediately when these people came to faith, they, they lived together in a way that showed generosity and that showed kindness and that showed patience. At the very end of Acts chapter 2, we're told that they uh, people sold their possessions. If people had a lot, they would sell their possessions and they would give to those that didn't have much. Right? They would help each other in that way. Uh, the church, just a beautiful picture that we see. It says that they had all things in common, that they shared their possessions. Kind of nobody considered their things their own. Right? The, the things that they had were, were kind of everybody's things. And it's this really beautiful thing. And it says that the Lord continued day by day to add to their number. I've thought about this before. Like, what, what would we do if, if daily people were coming to faith in Christ? What, what, what an awesome time in church history that daily people were coming to know Christ. People were coming into the church. They were coming into this place where they could belong. And they were coming into this place where they could serve and where they could even be served by one another. And we're told at this moment, I don't think this is a, a prescription that happens all the time, but we're told in this moment... Uh, that the church had favor both with God and with people, right? We, we, those aren't always one and the same. Having favor with God doesn't necessarily mean you always have favor with your community, right? We've just gone through First and Second Thessalonians where that church didn't have favor with their community. They were persecuted in their community. But, but in this moment in church history in Acts 2, we see that the church had favor both with God and with people, and it was a beautiful thing. And so given all of that history, here, here's kind of what I think is a working definition of the church. Like, how would you define the church, right? Some of you might say, well, the church is the place that we go to. Like, it's the building, right? We say, I'm going to church, right? Or I'm going to go down to the church, right? We say that. Um, some of you might define the church as uh, an organization that you belong to, right? That's also, the church is a building. The church is an organization that you belong to, that you're a part of. But, but let's try this as a definition for the church. The church consists of people chosen by God, number one, who have been, number two, purchased by the blood of Jesus, and number three, purposed with displaying and declaring the gospel to the whole world. 
The church consists of the people chosen by God who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus and are purposed with displaying and declaring the gospel to the whole world. Now that, that transcends an organization that you belong to. That transcends a place that you go or a building, right? This encapsulates what God has done for us, that He's chosen us, that, that we've been purchased at a cost, right, with the blood of Jesus Christ. And as a result of those things, that we've been given a purpose. We've been given a mission to make sure that everybody knows who God is and what He's done for us. And so I want to kind of unpack uh, in the rest of our time just these kind of three parts of the, the definition. People chosen by God, purchased by Christ, and purposed with displaying and declaring the gospel to the whole world. So, so, so are you seeing, uh, have we painted a picture so far? Have you seen kind of the history, what, what got us to here, who the church is, what, what the church does? I've heard lots of pastors over the years say something to the effect that if you were the only person on earth, that Jesus would have died for you. And I'm not, I'm not going to disagree necessarily with that statement, but I'm going to tell you, you're not the only person on earth, and Jesus didn't die just for you, right? Jesus died for more than just you. When we buy into a statement like this, the kind of the slippery slope is that makes me think, well, the gospel is about me, right? It makes me feel good and warm and fuzzy inside to think that if I were the only one, Jesus would have did what He did just for me, right? It makes me feel good. It makes me feel like somebody, Gives me the warm fuzzies. But Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 27 tells us this. It says that Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, one of the things that we talked about on our podcast this week uh, was the church universal, this idea that the church is more than what you see in this room. The church consists of all people of the Christian faith through all of time, both forwards and backwards, right? So people that live during Jesus' day, they're part of the church. People that are going to live long beyond our time, should the Lord tarry, right, are part of the church, this church universal, um, that the church is more than America, right? There's churches all over the world uh, that, that do things maybe a little bit differently than we do here in America. You can tune into the podcast to hear some about that, different faith traditions even within Christianity, right? So the church is more than just what we see here. The church spans time and history. Titus 2, 14, we're told that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us not you, not me. He didn't die to redeem me or you, but He died to redeem us from all lawlessness to purify for Himself a people, not, not a bunch of individual persons, but a people collectively for His own possession who are zealous for good works. We're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the second verse, Paul's introduction to his first letter to the Corinthians, he writes it to the church of God that is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Are you seeing any kind of hint of individualism in these scriptures? You're not because it's not there. We we live in a very individualistic society and even an individualistic time in history, right? But there's 
When the Bible speaks about the church, it's speaking about the collective, not, not the individual people that make it up, but the collective. And then the best thing that we're told about this church, this people chosen by God, Matthew 16, 18, Jesus tells Peter that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. It's easy to look at the church kind of in this time in history and think, man, like, like the church is kind of off the rails. Right? There's a lot of weird things happening in churches all over the world. A lot of weird things, a lot of weird theologies out there, a lot of false teachers, things like that. And it's easy to kind of get wrapped up in that and be discouraged by it. But, but we're told here that the gates of hell will not prevail against Christ's church. Church is going to survive. Church is going to survive the weirdness. The church is going to survive what we're going through right now. The church is going to make it to the end. And so a more biblical perspective of this people chosen by God would be not so much that if I were the only one on the earth, Jesus would have died for me, but more so a biblical perspective would be that Jesus died for us. Jesus died for the church, not for this person or that person or these individuals, but, but for the church collectively. I hope, hopefully that makes sense. This people chosen by God. So at the end of the day, the gospel is not good news for a bunch of individuals. God didn't deliver His Son, so something that was okay that could be made a little better. It's important that we understand that, right? Sometimes we think about, um, you know, especially as Westerners, like, I'm, I'm a pretty good person, or at least, like, I can think of a lot of people I'm better than, right? You can, we can all do that, right? God, God didn't do what He did so that people that were okay could be made better. Jesus did what He did for sinners who were rebellious, creation who was rebelling against their Creator could be redeemed. Not made better, but made new so that the old would go and that the new would come. So Jesus, speaking really in, into the nothingness of my life and your life and creating something. The Bible tells us that our faith is a gift from God. It doesn't come from deep down within us, that it's a gift from God. And so again, God's speaking into the nothingness and creating something where nothing existed. So Jesus died for the church, for all who would come to him and believe. So the people chosen by God, purchased by the blood of Jesus. In Acts chapter 20, when Paul's addressing the elders of Ephesus, the Ephesian elders, he reminds them that it's their job as elders, as pastors, as shepherds to care for the church of God. So God didn't just create a church and, and leave it on its own, right? God gave to the church elders and deacons and people that would care for it to care for the church, which we're told in Acts 20, that He obtained with His own blood. Now, think, think about your possessions, things that you own. For most of us, the things that we spend the most money on are the things that, that we deem to be the most valuable, kind of maybe setting aside, you know, sentimental things, the more that we spend on something, the more that we value it, the more that it means to us because of the cost at which we got this thing. Well, the cost of the church, Paul reminds the Ephesian elders, was, was the blood of Christ. So, so this was no small price to pay to redeem this rebellious people. Right? Jesus paid a high price. The Father paid a high price in the giving of His Son, and the Son paid a high price in the shedding of His blood 
so that this rebellious people could be redeemed. What, what value does the church have to God because of the cost at which he came to possess it? It's got a high value. A high value, and so much so, again, that the gates of hell won't prevail against the church because it's God's church. Right? And God is looking out for His church. We're told in Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15, so speaking of Jesus, saying that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He's before all things, and in Him all things hold together. So, so painting a really grandiose picture of who, who Jesus is. And, we're told, if being the firstborn of all creation, if being the invisible image of God is not enough, if uh, ruling over all thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities, if that's not enough, if creating all things was not enough, if holding all things and all of creation together, as if that's not enough, then Paul says, and he's the head of the body, the church. He controls all things, he oversees all things, Everything's within His authority to rule. He reigns over all, and He's the head of the church. He's the beginning, He's the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, Jesus has now reconciled by His body of flesh, by His death, in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before Him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So Jesus is over all things, controls all things, rules all things, has authority over all things. He's the head of the church. And even though in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, that we're told that, that He has made reconciliation possible between a rebellious creation and a holy God. And He did so by the shedding of His blood, by dying on a cross for the church. Now, now we would say that, that Jesus' death on the cross is available to any and all who would believe. But we would say that it's effectual for the church, for those who come to believe, right? And he did this by the shedding of his blood in order that the result of this purchase is that we, the church, would be presented before the Father one day blameless and holy and righteous, and pure. Th things that are not inherent to us. What's inherent to us is a rebellious sin nature. Unholiness, unrighteousness, complete blamelessness. Those things are inherent to us. But at the cost of Jesus' blood, what comes unnaturally to us or supernaturally to us is this righteousness, this holiness, this purity. As a result of the righteous one, the holy one, the pure one, taking on for himself 
the sins of you and me and, and all who would come before us or come after us upon himself and shedding his blood so that those sins could be cleansed from us so that we could inherit this supernatural kind of status that doesn't belong to us. And that came at the cost of Jesus' blood. People chosen by God, purposed, purchased with the blood of Christ, and because those two things are true, we're now purposed with displaying and declaring the gospel to the whole world. So if, if what we've just said up to this point, if all of that's true, not, not saying if in a questioning way, but if in a logical way, if, if all of this is true, if, if God has, has chosen the church, if Jesus has purchased the church at great cost, if He's given to us something uh, that's not inherent to us, if we've been made holy and blameless before Him, if those things are true, then what makes sense in light of that is that we would devote our lives as the church, as Christians, to making sure as many people know this truth as possible. And not only does it make sense, it's actually God's plan. We're told in 2 Corinthians 5 that it's God's plan not necessarily plan A and there's a plan B, but like the singular plan that it's God's plan that those who have been reconciled, those who understand this truth, would then become ministers of reconciliation. In other words, that we would undertake this purpose as Christians and as the church of displaying and declaring the gospel throughout the whole world. Those who have received reconciliation will now become agents of reconciliation to the world. This is God's plan of getting this message out to the world. And it's, it's the role, I asked you earlier, what, what is it that keeps us from the moment that we come to faith from getting beamed into heaven? It's this. This is what keeps the church on earth, is this idea right here. If, if God had another way to get this message out, or if God, not that He doesn't have another one, God to do whatever He wants, but, but if, if God had a different plan than this, then it might be that Christians upon coming to faith would get beamed to heaven and there would be another way. But this is God's plan, the way that God has designed it, the purpose of the church. Right? The church doesn't exist to do good things in the world, although the church does, should anyway, and does do good things in the world. Right? The church doesn't exist for benevolence, although we do undertake benevolence. Right? The church doesn't exist to make our communities a better place, although I hope that we do make our communities a better place. The church doesn't exist solely to teach people the Bible, although we do teach people the Bible. The church exists so that through all of these efforts and through all of these endeavors that we would be able to get the message of the gospel out to the world. That a sinful, rebellious, unholy, unrighteous people can be reconciled to a holy God. That's the purpose of the church. <clears throat> Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, puts it this way. It says that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people, and once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so Peter reminds us, like this just kind of encapsulates everything we've talked about up to now is encapsulated in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. <clears throat> this reference to once not being a people, 
but now being God's people and once not receiving mercy, and now receiving mercy is, is a reference to the story of Hosea. You've probably heard me talk about this before. It's probably my favorite story in the whole Bible. <clears throat> the prophet Hosea, God told him that, that he was to marry a woman named Gomer and that this woman, Gomer, would be repeatedly unfaithful to him over and over and over and over and over again. And they had kids. And two of their kids were named, not my people and no mercy, right? <laughs> Think your name was rough growing up. Try being not my people and no mercy. These were two of Hosea and Gomer's kids. And as God had told Hosea, Gomer lived a life of unfaithfulness. She was a prostitute. And there came a moment where, where God visited Hosea and he told him, I want you to go find your wife. And it's, it's not that they didn't know where she was, like she was down at the brothel. Like, go find your wife, go, go to the brothel, and, and whatever the price is to buy her, like buy, even though she's your wife, right? She's rightfully yours and you're rightfully hers. Go, go to the brothel and pay the price to get your wife out of the brothel. Pay the price. And so Hosea went and he paid the price to get his wife out of the brothel. And then God comes back in this remarkable story of redemption and says, you know that, that, that child that I told you to name, not my people? I want you to change that child's name to now my people. And this child that you named, no mercy, I want you to change their name to mercy. It's the coolest story in the whole Bible, I think, of, of redemption. And the point of this story is not to look at Hosea and think, man, that guy was awesome. Right? Hosea is just kind of a pawn in the story. Right? This is meant to show us a picture of our life. This is meant to show us a picture of our repeated unfaithfulness to God as sinful, rebellious human beings over and over and over and over again. That's what the story is meant to show us. And it's meant to show us through Hosea what Christ has done for us. Even though He created us, all of creation rightfully belongs to Christ. All of creation, every human being, belongs in a sense to Christ. And in our repeated unfaithfulness over and over and over again, right, Christ came down to the brothel. And even though we rightfully belonged to Him, He paid the price, the price of His own blood, to purchase us out of this life of unfaithfulness and said, once you were not my people because of your unfaithfulness, and once you were not under mercy because of your rebellion, but now, now that I've paid the price for you and pulled you out of the brothel and have redeemed you from this life of unfaithfulness, now you're my people and now you're under my mercy. That's the beauty of, of the Christian message and the message that we're given to share. So when Peter references this message He's like, there's nothing else that makes sense if you buy into this message to be true. And if Christ has redeemed you from your unfaithfulness to Him, then that, that, there's nothing more excellent, in, there's no more excellent news in all of the world. Like, go and proclaim that news. There is no better news. There's not a lot of good news these days, right? The news, is, it's depressing and it's discouraging. You ever notice when the news comes on, it's, it's all these depressing things, and, and then at the end, you know, they, they have this segment of, you know, somebody doing things with cats or dogs or whatever. Like, those things make us feel good. There, there is no more excellent, praiseworthy news than this, than the news of the gospel. And again, if the news of the gospel is true, 
then we have this purpose as the church to display the news in the way that we live, the way that we love and care for and serve one another, right? The way that like we did this morning, we get to pray for one, we get to stand up in front of a group and say, I'm struggling with this, pray for me. And, and we're like, we pray for each other, right? We're displaying the gospel in doing that. But that's not enough. We have to also go out and declare the gospel, right? We have to make sure that people know what Jesus has done for them and invite them, call them into this relationship with God, this community with one another, because that's what God has done for us. He's called us into relationship with Him and invited us into this community that we call the church. So I want to end with this. 1 Corinthians 14, 12, I had referenced this in our, our podcast this week. Paul is writing a letter to the Corinthians and kind of correcting some of their theology when it comes to spiritual gifts and, and the church and how the church operates. And they're having all these questions about what's appropriate in a church service. Can, can we prophesy? Can we speak in tongues? Should we not do the weird things or whatever? And Paul, kind of in the middle of, of all of this, writes to them that since you're eager for a manifestation of the Spirit, right? When you think about, like, I, I came up in a charismatic church, and so I kind of get triggered by you know, hearing this phrase, manifestation of the Spirit, because of what I saw growing up. Right? It, all these images come into my mind and experiences that I remember that were just weird. And Paul says that if you're eager for a manifestation of the Spirit, he says, strive to excel in building up the church. For this kid that came up as a charismatic kid, that blows my mind because that's the last thing that I was taught growing up that was a manifestation of the Spirit. But Paul says, if you're eager for a manifestation of the Spirit, then strive to excel in building up the church. Because the church isn't going anywhere in all of its flaws, love it or hate it, in all of its flaws, the church is here to stay. It's going to survive. It's going to survive all the weirdness and, and things is going to survive um, anything that the world would throw at it. And so strive to excel at building it up. That doesn't mean that we don't talk about flaws. We don't ever bring correction. Of course, those things are part of it. But we, but we do so in a way that, that builds up rather than in a way that tears down. Anybody can tear down the church or try to tear down the church. It's a hard thing to build the church when it's full of flawed people, Right? And so strive to excel in building up the church. And so I would maybe just want to leave you with just this thought of, uh, that we would all ask ourselves, like, what can I do to strive to excel in building up the church? Probably lots of ways that we can answer those questions, and I'll leave that to you to answer for yourself. But what can we do to strive to excel in building up the church? Because it's full of people that have been chosen by God, purchased by the blood of Christ, and purposed with displaying and declaring the gospel throughout the world. Father, today we're, we're thankful for the church. We're thankful even in its flaws and even filled with uh, sinful people. Uh, God, we're thankful that in it um, that we can see that you are at work uh, redeeming the sinful people. I'm thankful as a sinful person that you have redeemed me, and I'm thankful, God, for the redemptive work uh, that we see in people's lives uh, every day. God, it's our desire that we would continue to see this redemptive work unfold. It's our desire uh, that the church would be built up, not for our own sake, but for the sake of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and so that we could be a beacon of light, a beacon of hope, right here in our own communities in Sun River and in Lapine, 
um, that, that would allow people um, to come to you, that, that we would get to play a part uh, in the salvation of many, and that we would even be uh, so audaciously bold that we would even ask, God, that you would add to our number daily those who are being saved. That seems like a bold claim, and if it happens, I'm, I'm not sure how we would handle it, but, but God, you can do that, and it's our desire and prayer that you would continue to build your church, which we know that you will, and that you would help us to be people that engage in the building of the church as well. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.